This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? How are you doing this evening, afternoon, morning, whatever? I'm Ray Harkins. You are joining us for a great episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast, because I have a rad, rad guest on this week. It is Norman Brannon. He is the guitarist for Texas is the Reason. He also played in a bunch of other bands, but uh, he also, very notably in my life, wrote a zine. It only put out, I want to say, six issues, uh, but it was extremely influential in my life and many other people's lives in regards to the way that independent music is documented, a zine called Antimatter. And uh, you can find him on Instagram, but you can find uh, the Antimatter zine on Instagram. I highly, highly encourage that. Uh, And he also put out a book, sort of a uh, compilation or a compendium of all of the Antimatter zines together. Revelation put it out, oh gosh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, but it is a spectacular read. Every so often I, I go back in there and I read the interviews and uh, they're they're timeless. They're evergreen. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, wow, yes, I can read this interview that took place in you know 1994. And it still is relevant today as it was when it was conducted. But anyways, uh, enough of my love letter to Norm. What I want you to do is buy band merch. Obviously, go to rockabilia.com. It is the place where you can buy all of your favorite band merch and the holidays, they're right there. We're talking a couple weeks. You need to buy gifts. Use this code PC Jabberjaw. PC Jabberjaw will get you 15% off whatever your heart desires for the people in your life that enjoy music. You can get ugly Christmas sweaters. You can get long sleeves. You can get short sleeves, all officially licensed by the bands. No horrible bootlegs because let's be honest, if you Google band merch, you're going to get some horrible Amazon link and you're going to buy a piece of merch that, for one, the band isn't making any money, and for two, the quality is awful. So don't do that to yourself or the people you're getting gifts for. Rockabilly.com is the place to go, okay? And myself, what's happening with me? Thank you for asking. I always appreciate that. First of all, email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I always love to hear feedback. I'm gathering some uh, some thoughts from people in regards to who I should have on for guests next year. And uh, yeah, just you know how this podcast can continue to, uh, I, well, not even so much grow, but just continue to be engaging and fun because you know I have fun doing this, but I want to make sure that you the listener and consumer of said thing, enjoy it as well. So yeah, email me. But uh, I had an interesting experience uh, this past weekend, I think. Yeah. So hung out with my friends in Silverstein. They were playing a show here in town at the House of Blues Anaheim, which is a a new House of Blues. Uh, It's existed for many, many years inside downtown Disney, but now it's kind of separate from that. And, um, yeah, so it was interesting. Like anytime you go to a venue that, you know, you know in one form and then you go into a different form, it's like, oh my gosh, this is a whole new world. And it was cause it was huge. It's, I would say it mimics more of the, uh, house of blues, Boston than anything else. But anyways, I experienced something uh, and I got some, some clarity on it, uh, that I just wanted to share with you because I, I was kind of surprised about this. Well, that's not surprised. That's maybe a bad word, but I was just like, oh, is this what's happening now at shows? And I just kind of missed it because, you know, I'm not going to as many shows as I used to. So in between bands, uh, and most specifically between Hawthorne Heights and Silverstein, um, you know, they're playing music, obviously, in between every band you play music. But, uh, you know, they're playing stuff that was very, uh, I guess, on brand, where it's like, you know, they're playing Panic! at the Disco, Under Oath, My Chemical Romance, you know, and some of their most popular songs. 
and people in the crowd were, you know, yelling along, and it was basically one huge sing-along, which, of course, many people would be like, uh, Del Rey, have you not heard of Emo Nights? And it's like, of course, of course I've heard of those. I personally have never attended one myself, um, but I, I know what happens there. <laughs> and so I just found it interesting. I was like, well, maybe that that's because of that. And I was like, is this the House of Blues sound guy that's doing that? Uh, I come to find out that uh, Silverstein actually curated the list. And, you know, it makes sense. The headliner, headlining band wants to kind of curate the evening and experience. And so, you know, rather than just relying on the sound person to play whatever, you know, rock music in between the bands, they were like, no, we want to get kids pumped up and excited. And so I was like, okay, that makes total, total sense. And so, but yeah, I just, but other people, I put this out on Twitter and other people echoed back the sentiment of like, oh yeah, this is interesting. I've been watching this happen now for a couple of years. Um, you know, I've had friends and bands chime in say, oh yeah, this tour that we just did uh, with Mayday Parade, uh, you know, all of the audiences were were singing along like that. So I don't know, what's your experience? I mean, I granted I'm old, so I'm like, you know, almost 40 years old going to shows, but uh, I just hadn't seen it in that form. Because usually, I mean, you know, old guy on the porch, uh, back in my day, um, in between bands, like that was the opportunity for you to like hang out with your friends, whoever you came to the show with. And, uh, you know, I felt like that w- would have been pretty difficult at that particular show because everyone was, uh, you know, yelling along with the song, which was fine. Like, I don't have a problem with that. I just uh, found it an interesting sea change from what I had experienced at shows. So, yeah, let me know what you think. 100 words podcast at gmail.com. Anyways, uh, yeah, Norm is just, he's a great individual. Like I, uh, wanted him on the show for a long time. Like I said, both Texas is the reason and antimatter were very influential in my young music life. Not only in the, me being a fan of the music that Norm created, but his zine was so, so powerful and incredible. Like, you know, I would, uh, scour record stores trying to find copies, uh, you know, old used copies of antimatter. And then, um, yeah, once, you know, revelation put out that, uh, that compilation, I was uh, very excited about that. So I could read all of the content cause that's ultimately what I wanted, but Norm was super gracious with this time and I loved it. So Here's our chat, and I will talk to you, of course, after the episode is over, where I always tell you who's on the following week. You know, nice little tease. That means stick around. I always reveal important info. Okay? Now, here's one. I start these things off with my own kind of, you know, personal entry point to, you know, you, your music and everything like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for, uh, forgive me for completely stroking your ego right here, but look, allow me to do it. Uh, the, okay, go, go crazy. <laughs> thank you. Um, so yeah, and, and I know that I'm not alone in expressing the sentiment, but you know, uh, antimatter and Texas is the reason we're both, uh, huge mile markers for me personally. Um, you know, and even, and I'm sure you heard the, uh, you know, that past present comp that Rev put out. All right. Yes. So, so the, I, I was the lead screamer for that band Makoto that, you know, butchered your, uh, back into the left song. Um, I did not know that. Well, uh, <laughs> that was me, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But it was like, you know, the, basically it was the slate of, uh, you know, it's like, Hey, here's the songs that have been chosen. Like, you know, here's, here's the bands that are left. And I was, I saw you guys. And I was like, Oh, I like this. This was, this was kind of the first song that allowed me to, uh, you know, like stuff that wasn't just specifically screaming, but, um, awesome. 
anyways, all that being said, the you know I was originally attracted to you via your writing with antimatter and everything because. Um, you know, it, you can you know disagree or agree with this this sentiment, but it, it, you you always seem so you know vulnerable and open, yet extremely confident in that uncertainty. Where you're like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm confidently not knowing what I'm doing. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate, actually. Okay. <laughs> and I, I presume that when you started to like write and uh, you know dive into it. You, you probably had no focus, but you know, when did it? When did you start to feel like you actually had? Um, I, I guess like your own set of expression, rather than just you know uh, imitating other people that you kind of saw around. Uh, well, that's actually kind of interesting. I think as a writer, you actually are always developing and always imitating different voices and sort of like trying to see um, whose voice you can sort of subsume and shape shift into the voice that you're you've created it's sort of like music in that way um i've i feel like i've subsumed so many other songwriters and guitar players um into this little blend that maybe people associate with me and so i feel the same way with writing i mean i'm always reading stuff i mean the last book that i read to me was a, a huge sort of uh revelation from a writing standpoint was roxanne gay's hunger i was um it's so, you know, cause it's so deceptively simple. It's a very easy to read, easy to digest, digest book. And when I finished it, I just remember felt, feeling completely satisfied and not overly taxed with sort of having to figure things out. She laid things out there in a very bare but sophisticated way. And it made me feel like, Oh my God, that's what I need to write. Like, um, so I'm, I'm still, you know, thinking about my writing in that way. I think what I was more struggling with back then was, am I a personal writer or like, am I an essay writer or am I a journalist or am, what am I sort of maybe, uh, from a taxonomical or classification standpoint. And I think that that was a little bit of, that was where my push pull was coming from. I think as a writer in the nineties, I, I didn't want to be a journalist and I'll say why, because journalists to me imply, um, partiality and being unbiased. And I think it's fair to say that like I was never impartial or unbiased. I, I always sort of had a direction and an idea of what I was doing, even when it was just a Q and a to a certain extent, I was still directing the Q and a, I still sort of knew what I wanted to get from the conversation. It wasn't just totally, you know, impartial. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense too, because when you start to approach writing at that, you know, tender age of late teens, maybe early twenties, like you, you're, you're so full of, you know, ideas and passion that, uh, it's difficult to, you know, remove yourself. Like, yes, of course you can, you know, speak to a band that you might not be like the biggest fan of, but like you said, directionally speaking, you're still going to want to extract something out of them that is interesting to you. Right. And I think you, you know, this, this notion that you brought up of, of removing yourself, I think that there's this idea or there was this idea. I don't know that this exists anymore because journalism as a style, I think has maybe not progressed, but evolved. Um, 
I think back then there was this idea that a journalist took himself out of the story and simply was the observer who was presenting what he saw and heard. And that also wasn't what I was interested in. As far as I was concerned, I was as much of the story as the band was. I was there. I was physically in that room. Everything was sort of happening because I was there. I was causing things to be said, causing things to happen. Um, you know, and a lot of times when I'm doing cover stories or some of these more like in-depth Q and A's, I was, uh, you know, we were going from place to place or doing multiple interviews or like, I couldn't take myself out. I was there to take myself out would have been to lie. And so I think that, you know, especially when I was writing for other magazines, like alternative press or vibe or, you know, whoever else, um, I still was conscious that I didn't want to, that I wanted to speak in the first person, that I wanted to be in the story. Um, and I felt like that was the only way to tell that story authentically. Sure. Yeah. Because it's the, especially too, like you're, you, like you said, you're, you're actually actively participating in this thing, you know, whether it's playing in bands or, or, you know, being active within the community. And it's a whole different story if you are, you know, like if you were to cover professional wrestling or whatever, like, yes, (laughs) you know, you could be far removed from that and you could have a context for it and probably do a pretty good job at it, but you're less invested in that just because, you know, you haven't wrestled yourself for 10 years and, you know, got all the circuits and whatever. So yeah, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. Right. And I think like, you know, I also think about just uh, certain things like when I did this rancid, I, well, I did two stories about rancid for one record. I did a cover story for alternative press and then I did a feature for vibe. And when I remember when I was doing the interviews, I did multiple interviews with them over the course of weeks. And, um, during one interview, uh, Tim just sort of like reached over and turned over or turned off my tape recorder and said, okay, cool. Let's talk about Texas is the reason for a second. And like, (laughs) like, okay. But I was like, you don't have to turn off the tape recorder. And he's like, what? I was like, it's part of the conversation. Just let it ride. I was like, I don't care. You can, you can ask me whatever you want. Like I'm game. And I think that that was sort of my MO throughout, you know, all of the, artists and people that I've interviewed over the years is, is really like, it's not just a one-sided conversation. I want to be there. Ask me questions. Let me tell you stuff. We can share stuff together. I'm fine with that. I'm not asking you to put yourself, um, you know, out there naked while I'm like, you know, bundled up in winter clothes. That's not my, my deal. Yeah. And I, and I, I always try to, I mean, uh, clearly I identify with what you're saying. Cause I mean, I do that, that myself constantly, but the, uh, I, I do find it weird and maybe just because I've always viewed it through the, the lens that you're speaking of, uh, I find it weird when people react, um, you know, kind of negatively, like overtly negatively, like, you, you know, you can decide to not like a piece or not like a person from whatever they've written or spoken about. But people that take this like vehement, uh, you know, uh, opposition to the idea where it's like, I want to hear the interview subject respond to questions. And it's like, <laughs> I, I'm like, I don't, I, I don't know what world that, that people like want that just like really cut and dry, like question, in, interrogation. Like, I don't know. It just right. doesn't make sense to me, I guess. They're boring. I mean, you know, I, I remember my first interview ever was with Roger Moret from Agnostic Front. And it was in 1989, I want to say. I, it was right when he got out of jail. Um, and, 
you know, I felt like a cub reporter. Like I had my notebook with my questions and it was very by the book. And, you know, even when I finished the interview, I was like, hmm, that sucked. Like it was just, I knew that that wasn't how I wanted to do it. And, uh, and I never did it like that again. Right. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally get that. Um, so kind of, you know, uh, putting the focus directly on you as an individual. Um, it, it's funny because I was trying to, there, there's a lot of sort of biographical information. I was started, I was trying to like recall about you just because, you know, like I've, I've experienced your, your life in reading interviews and all that other sort of stuff. But then I was thinking about it. I'm like, I have no idea where like you were sort of born and raised. Like, I mean, I'm presuming within the sort of New York city area, but I don't, I don't know. So is that correct or no? (laughs) Yeah, no. I mean, uh, so I was born and raised, uh, for the most part in Woodside Queens, um, which is actually also where Chaka was born and raised. We sort of lived in, uh, or near sort of rival, um, projects, I think. But, uh, we didn't know each other. I didn't know him back then. Um, my parents around the end of junior high, beginning of high school, my parents, um, moved to long Island. Their idea was that, um, they thought that there were better schools there and they were concerned that if I went to high school in Queens, that I was going to drop out. Um, and at that point I was a really, really good student actually. So I don't really know where that fear came from. They just sort of got that weird fear. And, uh, and so they moved to Long Island where they heard the public schools were really good. And I didn't last very long. I think I, because they moved, I essentially dropped out, um, because I didn't really have any friends. It was a sort of social nightmare. I was, uh, they moved to a town that at the time in, in 1988, I want to say it was, um, all white and I was the brownest thing that hit the scene. <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically I was, you know, I was literally being called a nigger, uh, like every day, like I was getting suspended for fighting. Uh, you know, I was, it was just not, a good situation. So, you know, I stuck it out as long as I could. I basically figured out, I did research, um, that said that when you're 16 years old, you can leave the house. Like you, you can drop out of school. You don't need parental permission. And I was sort of like, okay, that's the goal. Just make it until I'm 16. And, uh, so pretty much when I was about to turn 16, I just stopped going to school completely. Um, and then my mom signed me out of high school and I went back to the city. Right. right That's like you're an emancipated minor at that point, right? Yeah. We didn't make it like legal. It was more like she was basically saying to me, like, if you're not going to high school, you can't live here. And I was like, sweet. That was the plan. (laughs) (laughs) I set you up perfectly for that. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So I moved back and, uh, and just made my own way. Right. Right. Which, um, the, I mean, retro, retroactively thinking of it, like, you know, that, that takes a lot of, uh, courage. I mean, whether or not like you were, like you mentioned, you were trying to, you know, escape a punishing situation and something that you didn't feel like you had any recourse for. So taking this control, I'm sure felt like an element of that. But, um, like, did you feel, I guess, courageous in some capacity or was it just simply, I, I gotta get out of here? Yeah, it was more desperate. I, <laughs> sure. I really just had to get out of there. I didn't think of it necessarily as brave, although 
you know, when I think about things now, I think about my God kids and I think about when they were 16 and how I could never imagine them, uh, living on their own and doing what I did. Like now I think back and I'm like, Hmm, that was a little weird and crazy. Maybe that wasn't the best idea, but it was the only option. I really couldn't stay there. It wasn't just the school. It was my entire family. It was a mess. Um, I had to get out. Right, right. And you you were an only child or no? No, I have a full brother and a half brother. Got it. And are were you close to them at the time? And Or has it always been kind of an uh, interesting relationship? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, my oldest brother, honestly, it, it sort of bums me out. I, so he's like 10 years older than me or something. Um, he's a half brother and he didn't really live with us growing up, only sort of was around a little bit, but I don't know that I've physically seen him since I was eight. So, uh, yeah, it kind of bums me out that we never really cared enough to have a relationship. Um, my, my brother, that's my full brother who I grew up with. Um, he's just always been a different guy. Um, you know, like he's a very, he sort of cut from the same cloth as my parents. My parents were Pentecostal, um, you know, extremely fundamentalist Christians. Uh, and, and when you sort of take in the Latino Pentecostal sort of world, which I think is even crazier than the white Pentecostal world, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a whole different ball game. And, and my brother was sort of cut from that cloth. So, I think growing up and especially growing up and realizing that you're gay right off the bat, you're like, these guys are going to completely lose their minds if they find out. And, you know, and sure enough, they, you know, they disowned me when I came out to them. So I never saw them again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's so much, you know, wrapped up into that uh, of the notion, like what you were saying, where you felt like you had no recourse, like everything that you kind of thought was potentially going to happen you know, ended up happening in many respects. And so like, that's, uh, yeah, like I I can, I can easily see why you felt like the only choice was like, yes, I'm going to strike out on my own as a 16 year old in New York city. Yeah. And it's like, it's funny because I always say like, I'm not the best poster child for it gets better. Uh, like I could argue that it got worse, but, uh, (laughs) it eventually gets better, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Through, through, uh, through persistence and willpower, it eventually gets better. (laughs) Hopefully. Right. The storyline's still being written. Yes, exactly. But <laughs> I, I think for, you know, a person such as my myself, where it's like, I mean, whatever, a very typical white middle class upbringing, um, you know, when I started to experience a lot of these, uh, you know, other people's experiences, uh, you know, either through music and the community that surrounded our independent music scene, you start to realize where it's like, oh, like, not only is there, there power in diversity, but there's power in other people's stories. And I think that, you know, even though I had no uh, difficulties that, uh, you know, were similar to you, I, I looked at that and I was like, oh, like, I, I still feel very similar to you as far as the attraction to, you know, independent music and the aggression and everything else that kind of happens from that perspective. So it's like, even though you can have all these different backgrounds, you still feel that draw. And that's what I think is so um, interesting about what it is that we both get attracted to. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that hardcore provided a, I think my, my sort of relationship with hardcore was maybe a little bit 
more unique. I mean, obviously everybody talks about, oh, I got into hardcore because I was so angry at the world and expressed my anger and I was able to take it out on people in the pit and, you know, all those things. Um, for me, there were a couple things. Yes, I relate to the anger of hardcore or, or maybe more so past tense. I related to the anger of hardcore because I was a very angry young man. Um, I also thought hardcore provided a pretty good sort of cover uh, for being gay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, as I'm sure a lot of other uh, eventually out queer hardcore kids maybe felt, um, you know, when I was a skinhead in the 80s or whatever, like, you know, I was a total homophobe. Nobody would ever be like, he's gay. No, I mean, I was as homophobic as everybody else in the scene because I was like, that's what I will need to do to survive. Um, you know, and people in New York, it was a big, you know, people bragged about fag bashing. People went to jail for killing gay people. I, it wasn't just like an imaginary uh, fear that I had. Um, you know, this was operating in our scene, forget about in the greater city, um, just in our scene queer people were getting bashed, uh, and killed. So, uh, you know, it was something that again, survival, I needed to figure out how to survive. So let me set the scene for you. You, you you've probably been here. It's like midnight. You've watched like 25 YouTube videos of like your favorite band, you know, doing cover songs, doing, you know, studio sessions. And you're like, wow, I, I wish that there was a app that actually like made this easier for me to discover stuff rather than just like randomly clicking around. That is what YouTube music is here for. It's a brand new music streaming service combining everything you'd expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube to bring it all to life. YouTube music makes it easy to find the music you're looking for. Official albums, singles, music videos, live performances, even covers and remixes. Like I told you. Don't know the song's name? You can search by the lyrics. It's that easy. The YouTube Music app gives you recommendations based on taste, location, and the time of day. You can easily find the music trending around you no matter where you are. So you'd be like, hey, I'm hanging out in a city. Like, what song's popular here? Oh, wow, that's weird. I didn't think that. And with YouTube Music Premium, it's even better. You can get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. Enjoy your music whenever you want it, even when you're offline. So here, stop what you're doing. Download the new YouTube music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then you can enjoy music for just $9.99 per month. Terms and restrictions, of course, apply. But YouTube music, it's all here. Trust me, the service is unbelievable. I've been using it the past couple months, and I'm, uh, I'm just thoroughly impressed, okay? So try it out. I promise you'll enjoy it, okay? Now, on with the show. Kind of on that same notion where, you know, a lot of basically almost every sort of piece of art that you've put out there from your writing to your, your music, there always has this theme. And I, I know this isn't an original theme per se, uh, but that there's always that kind of searching, searching and wandering, um, you know, maybe a little bit more so than, you know, other pieces of art that, that speak about, you know, whatever relationships and breaking up or whatever. Um, right. Do you, uh, you know, kind of retro retroactively looking at that, do you feel that that's a, an appropriate characterization of like, oh yes, there's oh, like, you are, you are looking for your communities maybe, uh, more than most because of your circumstances. Yeah. Well, so a couple things, I mean, one is that I was absolutely, especially like as a younger person, um, I feel like I was very much community jumping as a way of sort of, um, family replacing. Um, you know, I basically was looking for 
the people that I felt were, you know, down for me. And, and, and I'd, I'd probably say that that's another aspect of hardcore that was so attractive to me, that sort of loyalism that, you know, if you're my friend, I'm going to love you till the death, you know, kind of vibe. Um, and, you know, when you don't really have a family connection, that's, uh, you know, crucial to your well-being is finding those people who feel that way about you, who, you know, are going to stick up for you and, and vice versa. Um, so that's definitely true. And so, you know, it wasn't just hardcore, you know, just wasn't, wasn't just sort of like, Oh, am I part of the skinhead family? Am I part of the hardcore family? Am I part of the straight edge family? Am I part of the Harry Krishna family? Uh, you know, am I part of the queer family? Am I part, you know, it was, it was sort of like, you know, I absolutely was jumping, uh, community jumping, let's say, uh, still looking for some sort of like something to fill the family shaped hole in my heart or something. <laughs> but it's, uh, but you know, I think that the difference now is that I don't believe that there is an end game to the search. Uh, I am at a place in my life now where I think you know, I've had a lot of amazing experiences, a lot of amazing relationships, a lot of things that people have told me that they're jealous of that, you know, I've experienced. I don't get everything and that's cool. And so, you know, this time around, I didn't get a family. Okay. I got so much other stuff. And I think I have to keep reminding myself that, that, um, you know, I don't need to replace them. Uh, that's not how it works. You take what you get and be grateful for it. Right, right. And no, that's true. I mean, it, it's always the, you know, keeping up with the Joneses where you're looking at what other people have that you don't. It's like you're, no matter what, you could be, you know, like I always joke around where it's like, you know, it, does does Coldplay and Chris Martin, do they look at like you two and are like, God damn it, I wish we were you two. And then, like, you know, does YouTube yes. and one hundred percent? Like, it, it is a snake eating its tail to the very, very top. <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. There's, there's no, uh, there's no end to it. And I think that's another thing that I, I feel like uh, it's, it's more just trying to be conscious of this fact that, um, you know, I should more than anything else, and and maybe this is some weird, you know, Buddhist thing, but it's. It, I, I truly, truly believe that the, the biggest problem of my life, the, the biggest recurring problem of my life is this tendency to fixate myself on what has happened or what will happen or what will happen. And, and, and this tendency to sort of just not even be here right now. Um, I, I need to be present. I need to look at things as they are at this minute. That's, that's what it, what, where happiness is. I, I really think that as long as you think about the past or the future, you're fucked. Totally. Yeah. Both, both things you can't control. <laughs> yeah. The, um, so, you know, I mean, clearly, you, you know, you've, you've played guitar in, you know, all the, all the bands that you have, uh, you know, played in and what have you, when was that always kind of the focus for you as you started to, you know, get into music more and start to, you know, contribute to the, you know, hardcore and punk scene or, or were there other instruments that you were kind of, uh, you know, drawn to initially? I, I played drums in my first band. 
It was, uh, yeah, I was, I wanted to be a drummer, but growing up in New York and being a drummer is challenging because everyone lives on top of each other and no one wants to hear you practice. So it, um, it was very short lived. Um, the band, I mean, every, actually, uh, it's kind of a bizarre thing. It was, um, when I lived on Long Island, I met this guy who was in my brother's grade he was uh, a singer. Um, his name was Rob, and he later became the singer for Black Train Jack. Okay. And then the bass player, I don't even know, I, th- I think Rob maybe brought him in, uh, was this guy Scott, who was the bass player for Mind Over Matter later on. And, uh, and then the guitar player was this skinhead guy that was in our school who I've never heard from again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's say long, long Island heavy hitters there. <laughs> it's, it was so, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's sort of for, for your first sort of random high school band when you're like 13 years old, <laughs> That's huge. like it's kind of cool that, that three of the four of us sort of went on to do other things that people seem to like, which is cool. Um, and so, but that was very, very short lived. I moved to guitar because it was quieter and, uh, and because my, my older brother played guitar. So there were already guitars in the house. Um, he taught me a power chord and I sort of just went from there and taught myself how to play the rest. Um, yeah. Got it. And, um, you know, as, uh, as you were essentially on your own and, you know, dropping out of school and a lot of those things, you know, have been documented in other places. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people look at the, the common archetype of a high school dropout as being someone that, you know, doesn't care about education and, you know, all of the, uh, stereotypes as far as that was concerned. I mean, clearly you worked in education for a while and, you know, yeah, you always seemed like a person who, education was important, but maybe not in the context of what your traditional high school experience was. Um, you know, as, as I presume that's been something that you've thought about where it's like, Oh, that's, yeah, it's kind of funny that I'm a high school dropout, but I really care about learning. Well, I mean, to be honest, I always wanted to be a teacher. Like that was always the plan from, from being, I think six or seven years old, honestly, I would come home from school and I would redo school as the teacher. That was what I would do. I would have my dad, uh, like make photocopies to, so I could hand out fake tests to my imaginary students. And I would basically reteach everything I learned in school at home to my imaginary class. So this was like, that was what I wanted to do. There was absolutely no doubt in my mind. I wanted to be a teacher. I think that thinking about it now the the dropping out thing, you know, obviously it came from having, you know, an abusive childhood and getting out of an abusive situation with my family. Uh, it came out of living on long Island and not wanting to be there and, you know, feeling completely just, uh, desperate and hopeless, um, while I was there. But another thing about it was this, I knew I was gay and in the eighties and really nineties, um, there was still this, this trope of the gay pedophile. There was still this feeling that you couldn't be an out gay teacher. Uh, they, would never hire you. And if they did and found out you were gay, you'd lose your job immediately. And all the parents would hate you. And everybody would think that you were doing something fucked up. And 
knowing what the climate of that was, I think put me into a greater state of devastation where I was like, you know, this was the only thing that I even thought I might even do as a grown up. And I don't think I get to have that. So fuck it. Who cares? I might as well just drop out. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, um, that's hard. Yeah. It was, it was, I mean, it's, it's funny. It's not necessarily something that I think I articulated to myself so clearly back then, but as I got older, I realized that it was definitely a big part of it because when you're dropping out of school, you know, you, the things you think about are really, okay, if I do, if I do this, what am I putting at risk? And teaching was really the only job that I needed that piece of paper for. Because honestly, like nobody ever asked me for a high school diploma in my life after that. Like never, never. This whole myth about the high school diploma and the permanent record, I realized it was all a sham immediately. And I was like, oh man, (laughs) I should have dropped out ages ago. Totally. I should have been a a freshman. (laughs) Yeah. So I was, you know, once I realized that I was sort of like, okay, so really I only need this piece of paper to teach and I can't teach because I'm gay. That was, that was the mindset. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can understand that. And, uh, you know, yeah, just like I said, that's, that just sucks that you had to obviously look at that and be like, well, okay, that's not even an option, but it, it, but you know, on the positive side, the fact that you were able to do it much later and, you know, clearly be able to, uh, have an appreciation of it in ways that, uh, you know, you were like, I'm, I'm living a childhood dream that I wanted to do. Yeah, it was sort of weird though. Um, because, you know, I started college when I was 33, right. I think maybe 30. Yeah, no, 33 years old. I won't say I'm lucky that I still kind of look young. I mean, like people didn't look at me like the old guy in the room. If anything, they were sort of weirded out when I would start engaging in the class because clearly I was kind of coming from a level that probably wasn't a 21 year old kid's understanding of the world. Right. And, uh, and so then they would sort of maybe get the idea that, oh, he's older or something. But <laughs> Totally. There's, but there's some differences here. I remember my first semester back in, in college, you know, there was a girl that was just hitting on me, like not, I mean, and she's like clearly 19 years old. And I remember just like pulling her aside after class and I was like, honey, you're barking up the wrong tree on a million ways. <laughs> <You know? laughs> totally. And I told her, I was like, honestly, I, I, you know, I'm technically biologically old enough to have sired you (laughs) and I'm gay as hell. (laughs) So let's just, let's let's drop it. Right. (laughs) That's incredible. Um, I think something that I've uh, admired about you as well is, you know, some people may look at this as you just being a busybody and always trying to get involved with all these other things. But, you know, you've you've never been a person where that you've kind of just stuck to your lane, so to speak. You know, it's like, yes, you may have played in just like one band over, you know, a period of time, but you've always been involved on multiple levels uh, of, you know, not only the music industry, but just kind of entertainment as a whole. that, that usually I, I, you know, not everybody does that even in the context of like, you know, punk and hardcore and stuff. Like there are people who simply attend shows and maybe play in a band, but are not really kind of go, you know, booking shows and doing the other things. Uh, where do you think that that drive kind of came from inside of you? Um, or was that just like simply a function of like, Oh, I just like this. I'll I'll try this out. Uh, well, I mean, it started with survival. (laughs) 
it's, it started with being, you know, 16, 17 years old and, uh, you know, sort of trying to put my ducks in a row in terms of what can I do to make money? What can I do to not starve to death on the streets of New York? And, uh, you know, I was lucky that I had this sort of hardcore family that, you know, looked out for me, you know, my first job in the city was managing a health food store, uh, where my coworkers were Chaka from burn and Mark from super touch. And Mark got me the job and basically said, look, Chaka is probably going to be leaving soon. So when he leaves, you can take his position. You'll get paid more. I was like, great. So I did that. I, um, and I sort of just did that in between, I'd say 108 and shelter. Then when shelter happened, I started touring with them and I had this idea where I was like, I'm going to just save all the money I make from shelter to figure out what my next move is. And I put all that money pretty much into antimatter. And then I made a living doing antimatter. I figured out how to make a fanzine, uh, profitable, I guess it, which is really crazy. Um, right. Right. still to this day, I'm sort of like, I was, yeah, like I was a professional fanzine writer. That was, that's weird. Um, I still think that's weird. Now that's to say, it's not to say that I was like living large. I was definitely still living very humbly, but I was living and that was, you know, amazing. Um, you know, then after antimatter, I had Texas that sort of carried me over. And then after that, you know, like I said, it's survival. It's sort of trying to figure out, um, you know, what a person in my situation can do to, uh, exist in the world. And, I was lucky enough that in the 90s, I think having kind of evenly split my time between writing words and writing music, I've, that kind of opens up a lot of doors that are interesting doors that I don't know that would have opened up otherwise, um, including you know things like uh, you know I was a writer for the Thursday documentary Kill the House Lights, which was super fun to do. I did all the interviews and like. Uh, it was a great, uh, experience. I was also a TV host for a few years, um, on a show called the deal for here networks. And it was basically, you know, a queer pop culture show. And, uh, and that was, uh, that was very weird. I don't even know how I felt about it being on TV. Like I don't, I'm not, I don't consider myself to be a natural at TV hosting or anything, but everybody there, all the executives were like, you're amazing. And I was like, okay, um, cool. And I think it had something to do with that. What you learn, uh, from being a performer, from standing on stage in front of people and thinking about what is, what do I look like right now? Um, you know, I would sometimes watch videos of myself playing shows and be like, Ooh, that moves bad. Don't do that. You know what I mean? Like you'd sort of like see how you look like and you become more conscious of your movement and, and more deliberate about how you present yourself. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I've started, uh, I had this, these house record labels, um, from 2000 to 2004, which was also great when I was DJing. So yeah, I've, I've sort of just gone with whatever inspired me at the moment. I always joke about following my muse. Um, it's frustrating, I think to other people because I do tend to just, uh, jump around quite a bit and not necessarily, I don't like to stay on one lily pad for that long. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that, and that makes sense. I mean, the the just the function of living a, a life that's dedicated to the arts, whatever that may mean, it means that you know you usually have to wear you know ten different hats in order to make things you know work from a, a functional human level, as opposed to um, you know just like like you said, following your muse and being like, oh, I don't care about money. It's like, well, you, you kind of gotta like, <laughs> right, right. And I mean, you know, I've I've had regular jobs when I need to. I don't think there's any like shame in that. Um, I think that sometimes artists get this sense that if they're not making their living by doing that, there are, there are, that they're somehow a failure. But in my experience, um, I feel like when I am making a living doing my art, it puts undue pressure on my art. It, it puts sort of like a stain on my creativity in a lot of ways. And it's something that I almost have to pivot from at some point in order to not just be completely disgusted with it. I, I don't, I don't feel good. Um, when I'm uh, like, it doesn't like, I don't know how to explain it. I just, I, I don't I don't feel good making a sustained living from my creative projects. I don't know why. Well, I do. I mean, to your point, I do, this is actually going to dovetail into a question I was going to ask a little bit later where, um, you know, the, uh, the, the fact that you have been, you know, entwined in a lot of different business scenarios from, you know, obviously Texas is the reason, like, you know, there was, there was money that had to be divided appropriately there and, right. you know, antimatter, like you said, you, you made a living out of it. Um, and then, you know, uh, subsequent, you know, projects that you've done from, you know, collect records and everything else where the notion of like the business aspect of things, it seems like, you know, and this is me just kind of putting this on you, but you've, uh, I guess, reluctantly come to the idea where it's like, well, yes, like I know that I need money to function as a human and get this thing out to the world. Um, but it's not necessarily something I really, I guess, revel in or enjoy. Uh, right. is that, is that correct? Cause I know some people love like the business aspect of bands or whatever, but you seem reluctantly, <laughs> I guess, kind of going through it. It's, it's interesting. Um, I have this, this thing about how I'm, kind of good at a lot of things I don't like doing and band business or music business is sort of one of them. I know how to make a band profitable. Like even just like if you're a smaller band, I can tell you how to make the most out of that financially. Um, but that's not what I'm there for. Um, it's as a musician, that's not what I'm there for. The thing I like the most is the, the creative part. I like making stuff. Once the stuff is made, then the rest is sort of begrudging. It's just like, okay, well now I have to, and, and, you know, I try to keep it creative. Like even when you have a product, let's say, and then you're trying to market that product, I'm still trying to make the marketing interesting so that that feels like a creative pursuit as well. Like I'm creating something different. Um, and you know, and that this isn't some sort of like weird, um, like anti-capitalist thing or something that, you know, like not selling out thing. And it, like, it has nothing to do with that. I think you should make money on your art. I think you should, if you have a band and you're playing shows and people are coming and you're selling records, make all that money. Um, because ultimately it's not going to last forever. It's going to run out and, uh, and you earned it. You worked hard or you created something of value to people and that's worth something. So I, I absolutely don't, uh, you know, I, I'm not approaching this from some sort of weird, um, punk ethic kind of thing. It's just, a, uh, it's just more like my personal, um, ethos. 
No, not even ethos. It's just my, my, maybe just my personal taste. Like I enjoy it's, it's like what you enjoy. Some people enjoy vanilla. Some people enjoy chocolate. Some people enjoy strawberry. So, you know, for me, I enjoy making stuff. I don't super enjoy selling stuff. Um, but if you put a scoop of it in with two scoops of the stuff that I do like, I'll swallow it. Right. <laughs> that, is a, that is a beautiful analogy. No, I, I, totally, I totally get it. I think most people kind of um, reluctantly come to it because, I mean, no matter what, you're always going to have at least one or two people that are kind of the drivers of the business. You know, there's going to be the guy who's like, yo, I don't care about this stuff at all. Like, please don't include me. Like, of course I'll make decisions when it, you know, comes to tours right. or whatever, but, um, yeah, but you definitely have to, you know, have some passing interest in it, even if you aren't, even if it isn't the thing that you enjoy the most. Right. And, and, you know, like, again, this does go back to the survival instinct, which was, you know, when I was younger, when I was doing antimatter and when I was doing my first bands, like, a lot of it was really just like, you know, I wasn't trying to make money because I was, uh, you know, a sellout. I was trying to make money because I needed to eat. And, you know, I, when I needed to get a job, I was the first person to go get that health food store job. So props to the Cosby show show guy at Trader Joe's Prana was my Trader Joe's and, (laughs) and I did what I had to do. Um, but ultimately, yeah, like it's a lot of work, uh, you know, being in a band or, doing a fanzine or writing or doing whatever it is, those things are all a lot of work and you know, you deserve to, to do that for a living if that's what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally get that. Um, something that I, I have always found interesting within the context of <clears throat> Texas is the reason is the fact that, you know, I mean, clearly much ink has been spilled on the band's history and I'm not going to, you know, sit here and audit that. Uh, but you know, the fact that you, you guys had, uh, attention as far as, you know, major labels and the quote unquote mainstream, uh, people who were not necessarily connected to the punk and hardcore scene. Um, I am, I am sure that there are, you know, one or two moments in your head of like just completely weird scenarios that you were thrown into, you know, whether it's like, you know, stupid dinners with like, you know, 50 people or telling you that you're going to be the next Nirvana or whatever, (laughs) like, right. Right. Um, you know, just because that, that was kind of the nature of the business at that time. Uh, you know, do, do you have moments and it doesn't have to be something as, as, uh, you know, like crazy stories or anything like that, but I'm sure that there are some anecdotal moments that stick out in your head. It's like, that was weird that that happened. There was, I mean, that whole thing was weird. There wasn't really a moment of it that wasn't weird. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm not going to like, you know, see, it's so weird <laughs> still <laughs> because when, you know, obviously look, when we started the band, there was no, like, in my mind, uh, at that point, the archetype for what every band should want to be was Fugazi. And if our band could be half as big as Fugazi and maybe charge twice the ticket price, we'd be, we'd be good. Uh, <laughs> but that wasn't, that wasn't, you know, um, necessarily in the cards. We had, what happened was this. Our first show was in my living room at the Equal Vision house. And we invited a ton of people. It was just a party. So t- uh, Texas is the reason and Samuel played. And, but w- it was a party. We had snacks out. We had, you know, soda. We had, you know, I think we had balloons and things. Like it was just sort of like, you know, come over to my house and let's, and hang. let's hang out. And, you know, so like a bunch of our friends came out. I remember like the sick of it all guys were there. And like, you know, there were just a lot of people that were around equal vision at that time. And, uh, 
And then, you know, a few of them were friends of ours from the hardcore scene who were now working for major labels. So one of those was Mike Gitter, who at the time was working at Atlantic. Uh, one of those guys was David Walter, who used to do a, uh, an indie label from New Jersey called Withering, who put out the Greyhouse stuff. He was doing A&R for Hollywood. And Jason Jordan, who used to be in a band called Encounter in Philly and used to do Watermark Records, he was A&Ring for Columbia at that time. But we didn't know them as Mike from Atlantic, David from Hollywood, and Jason from Columbia. They were just hardcore kids who were our friends. And so we invited them not to get signed, <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, but because, hey, you should, you should come to our party and hang out. So uh, anyway, if anybody was there, and you know, it was way before the age of YouTube, so I don't think any video of this exists at all, uh, but from my memory, I don't think we were that good. Uh, it was our first show. We were nervous. We played maybe like, I want to say five and a half songs, maybe like the half song was a thing we dropped and never played again. It, you know, I could still play it for you because I remember, that. <laughs> That's but it wasn't, it wasn't very good. It was just sort of like we needed something else to take up space. Um, and we played and, and then I rolled my amp back into my bedroom and that was that. Um, that for whatever reason, and I don't know why, but between those three guys, they were all like, I think there's something here. I think this is good enough to work on a major label. And we were all like, what? <laughs> You're like, this does not make sense. Yeah. It just, it didn't make sense. Um, and so we sort of just like pushed it aside. We didn't do anything about it and, and whatever. So then we went out and we recorded our demo slash seven inch. It was originally just a demo um, with Brian McTernan in Boston. And when we came back, I remember I was hanging out at uh, with Matt Cross, who's the drummer for Orange 9mm. And he told me that I had dubbed him a copy of the demo and he told me that he fucked up the demo or something. He fucked up his copy and could I come over and make another copy? And I was like, Oh, you know, he's like, actually he's like, Oh, I said, I only had it on dat, which was what I was. I really only had it on dat because people had dat machines for whatever reason. And uh, so he said, okay, I don't have a dat machine, but my manager does. Could we go to my manager's office and dub it there? And I was like, okay. So we went to his manager's office and uh, his manager was this guy, Scott McGee, who also managed quicksand and sieve and skid row and, couple other things. I think they managed Bon Jovi at one point. His brother, Doc, manages Geek Kiss. Like, they're, you know, sort of big, but somehow wound up in, in this little New York hardcore bubble, uh, which was interesting. So we went to his office, and Matt was like, hey, Scott, this is Norman. I just need to... Uh, dub off of that real quick. And he's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So he's doing it, and he plays it, and if it's here when we get back, it's ours plays. And Scott... I see Scott stop what he's doing at his desk and just slowly lifts his head up and just looks at me and he's like, this is your band? And I was like, yeah. And he's <laughs> like, this is fucking awesome. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> and I remember the joke was that he had said about Garrett, he's like, you don't sing, do you? And I was like, no. And he's like, that kid's got pipes. And so we always used to joke with Garrett that he's got pipes. He's got was, pipes. Pipes for days. Yeah. You got them pipes, man. <laughs> but, um, but 
almost immediately then we had somebody who now wanted to manage us and potentially, you know, get us a record deal. We never did that because again, we were just sort of like, we, that's not the route we want to take. We're sort of happy just being an indie band. And that's why ultimately when we did sign with revelation, we signed for multiple records because we thought that if we signed a contract for two records and an EP that the major labels would leave us alone. But what I found out was that that only made it worse. Right. Yeah. And That's a motivating it, factor. <laughs> it absolutely was. And, and basically now everybody was like on top of the millions of dollars they wanted to give us, they, they would buy out our contract from revelation. So it was just like, okay, you know, there was a point where we just felt like, I don't know if we can win here. Like, and the record started doing, the album came out and the album was doing really well. And at that point, I think, you know, there was just this feeling of like, you know, maybe the thing that they're seeing is real. Like, why would they be, you know, so adamant about this? Like we've said no, like for like two years straight and it's just exhausting and we're tired. And, uh, and I think we, you know, at that point that we started to take it more seriously and, and started actually taking meetings with people like legitimately, um, to see what it was all about. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we did choose capital and we were going to sign with capital. Um, but you know, as the story goes, we broke up the week we were going to sign. So yeah. we never actually signed. <laughs> Didn't get that, that sweet, sweet, uh, advanced cash. <laughs> but the, um, you know, since, you know, you've clearly done, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, reading stuff with Texas is the reason over the, you know, whatever, since 2006. And, you know, again, in 2013, I want to say, um, whereas now it's like, you know, normal for every band that's ever existed to play shows, you know, 10 to 15 years after they quote unquote broke up or whatever. Um, the, uh, you know, how does nostalgia kind of sit in your head? I know we kind of spoke about that as far as, you know, you were saying the uh, only moment that you can control and focus on is, you know, what's right in front of you uh, and everything else is kind of useless. Um, but you know, there, there has to be certain elements of like, oh yes, like, you know, nostalgia is a powerful thing. It's a, it's a drug. It overwhelms people. Um, but you know, I, I guess how does it kind of, uh, relate to you and the, the art that you create and everything like that? I think my opinion about nostalgia has shifted a bunch over the years. I think it's great that people are nostalgic about the band, for example, like meaning that, you know, it's weird, but flattering to, to when you get an email from someone who's just like, Oh my God, you soundtracked my high school or something like that. I'm like, okay. Um, it's, I love that. I love that. I was a part of that person's life in some small way. Um, and there are a lot of artists who've been that for me. So I, I appreciate that uh, from my level though. I'm not nostalgic in the sense that I'm not misty eyed about that stuff. Like I don't sit around going, those were the days, you know, like that's not really, I don't feel that way. I think that it was great and I, it was a hap- happy and lovely experience to have gone through, uh, everything that I've done. Um, but it's not anything that I want to return to 
per se, like as it is. In other words, like I don't want to feel the way I did in 1995 because guess what? I was a miserable person. In <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It really was. I was miserable on a million different levels. I was miserable as a punk kid in a hardcore band. I was miserable as a, you know, closeted gay person. I was miserable as, uh, you know, a trauma, trauma survivor. I was miserable in so many ways trying to sort out what was going on with my life. And, you know, the fact that I made a few cool tunes, uh, you know, I'm amazed that I was even able to do that. I should have been just paralyzed in bed that whole time. Um, so I'm not nostalgic for that. Um, what I think I've shifted to now is more of a sense of owning history. Um, and what I mean by that is that I've seen like, you know, there were a lot of great bands from that era, for example, who don't have the same staying power as Texas, the reason not because they were better or worse, uh, bands, but largely because of situational factors their record labels didn't survive and everything went out of print and maybe they didn't tour enough or you know whatever it was a lot of situational factors we hit a lot of things at the right place at the right time on the right label with the right kids and you know hooray for us um but we also understand that, you know, that there are certain situational things. One of the reasons, you know, we exist is because our record label never went under. The album's always been freely available and you can buy it at any time and go on iTunes now and buy it. Um, but you know, a band like Lincoln, you can't find anything, a band like Samuel, you can't find anything. Um, you know, there are a lot of bands that you just, that they're just, they're, they're going to be obscure forever unless someone goes in and owns their history. If one of those bands goes in and says, you know what? We were good and people deserve to know that we were there, that we existed. Totally. And that's something that I think is, is mega important. And I think that's sort of why, uh, I've been thinking about antimatter a lot more, um, because antimatter, you know, was something that maybe I, I was a little, modest about, I guess, on some level. But, um, in recent times, like even in the last month since I've started the antimatter Instagram, uh, I started to realize like, no, you know what? Like you've got to own this and be proud of this. You actually did something that I think pushed the culture that, uh, affected hardcore culture, um, in a way that I can probably trace from, you know, the first issue to the last issue. And, you know, I'm not saying that it was the, uh, only horse in the battle, but it was a pretty important horse, I think. And, and it certainly, it gave me, uh, the opportunity for Texas is the reason to be a thing. If there was no antimatter, I don't know that the scene would have been ready for what Texas is the reason was. Definitely. Yeah. No, I, I see, I, I see what you're saying where it's like, the, uh, you know, the sort of contextualizing and the uh, embrace of past work isn't, you know, the high school football player talking about their championship game or whatever, you know, those, those tropes that exist. But there is a notion that it's like, yes, like this, this would not only was important to me, but this was important to even if it's a small group of people, like it doesn't matter. It's like yeah. it could be 10 people. It's like those things are 
uh, totems. And those things are important to put in context. And like you said, you're, you know, you're going to be the only one that can be the, the driver behind that. It's like, you know, yeah, like, you know, people like myself and many others would be like, oh, yeah, like antimatter, like should be a book. But like, you know, what what am I going to do? Am I going to be like, hey, Norm, right. <laughs> hey, Norm, hey, I'm going to put out a book of this thing that you did. You'd be like, uh, what? I don't I don't know. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. And even like, you know, that's the thing. Like, you know, one thing I realized with Texas is the reason, for example, is that, um, I feel like the hardcore scene sort of like turns over every six or seven years, like every six or seven years, I start getting more phone calls from promoters that are like, you should play this fest. You should play that fest. I get more emails from kids who are like, I never got to see you play. And I'm literally like, dude, we literally just played like four years ago. Um, it's, it's, it turns over. And I think even more so when you're talking about a fanzine, which, you know, at its height, you know, the last issue of antimatter sold 5,000 copies. That's amazing for a fanzine. Absolutely. But at it, you know, but when you look at the amount of people who have been in this scene since that issue came out, 5,000 is paltry, right? Like, you know, how many people have come in and out of this scene since 1995, thousands and thousands of people. So, it's, uh, you know, it's something where if I don't go in and sort of, you know, put my flag down into the dirt and say I was here, uh, it's going to get forgotten. And a piece of, of sort of history that I think is consequential will go missing. Sure. Absolutely. No, it makes total sense. Um, two last things I want to hit on before I let you go was the, um, you know, you, you know, throughout all of your, your, your travels and moving to different cities and participating in different, you know, musical projects, you've, uh, never seemed, I guess, far from like the hardcore punk scene. Like, you know, even though, you know, clearly you were very active within the, you know, house music scene and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, how, uh, you know, I, I guess in simplest of terms, like how, you know, how do you personally still stay engaged um, when, you know, most other people, once you hit a certain age, like it, it requires work and effort to be like, oh yes, like I'm going to go to a show or I'm going to like go to a record store. Or I'm going to listen to music. Um, right. most people drop out because of just other obligations, but I, why do you still care? <laughs> uh, why do I still care? Ooh, well, okay. I mean, there's two questions, right? Like yeah. what, how do you stay engaged and why do I still care? How do I stay engaged is, is fairly related, I think, to the antimatter credo, which is that uh, hardcore is not really a genre of music to me. It's a community of people. And I've always, I've never forgotten that community of people. I've always stayed in touch with that community of people. My best friends are from that community of people. Um, so it's it's not like, you know, I I stopped going to shows and started hanging around the financial advisor crowd or something like that. Like all of my best friends really like pretty much all of them come from this world. Um many of them are still active in this world. So that's nice because it allows me to be able to, you know, still feel like, um, I'm also active. Like I'm going out, I'm going to shows, I'm hanging out, I'm talking to people. Um, why I still care is interesting. I feel like, I mean, there's the generic idea, which is just that, you know, hardcore did provide something of value to me and I wanted to exist for other generations of people like me who need it. That's the, that's the simple answer. 
the more complex and like maybe personal answer is this. Whenever I've been really fucked, <laughs> like whenever like I've really needed help, the people in the other worlds that I sort of drift in and out of have never really done it for me. Like they've never really been there in a way that hardcore kids. And I use that term in the broadest sense of the term, because some of these people are now 55 years old. Right. But hardcore kids, people from this community, from this scene have always been there have always given me the help that I needed, the leg up that I needed to get to that next place. Even down to like, uh, you know, my job right now, I, am a real estate agent. I actually work for Keith Burkhart who used to sing for cause for alarm. Right, 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 right. That's funny. Keith is one of, yeah, he's, I met him doing an interview with him in antimatter actually. And we became like really, really close. Like, immediately like I did that interview and I think we became roommates within a year and we were like best friends like he's an amazing human being but at the time that I started working with him I was so in debt I was just no idea what my next move was to make money I was asking everybody I knew about jobs and potential leads or projects or anything that I could do to sort of like get by and nobody was coming through. And here's this guy from the hardcore world. He hears that I'm, I'm in trouble and he immediately reaches out and he's like, come work for me. I'll give you $5,000 right now to get you on your feet. And I was just like, damn. You're like what? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like, that's the, that's the shit. And that's what I mean. Like, you know, and I am that way too. Like I, whenever, you know, people from this community need help, if they come to me, I'm there. I'm going to do it. Um, and I think that that's something that you learn, um, you know, from sort of coming up in, in this, in this, I don't like using the word scene. I always use the word community from, from coming up in this community. I think that there is this sense that we have to be able to be there for each other. And that doesn't change if I don't go to every show that doesn't change if I'm not up on all the new bands. Um, I'm always going to be a part of it. And I always have been a part of it. I've never turned my back on it. Um, because I know that those are the people that at the end of the day have always, always been there for me in the most substantial way. Sure. Yeah, totally. It's the, cause I, you don't recognize this when you are, you know, first starting to attend shows and play in bands and stuff. You're just looking at these as these group of friends and like, you know, they're able, you're able to help each other out, but it isn't, it isn't until you experience other communities, whether it's work, church, like they, they all serve a function in people's lives. And those are all important in different aspects. But like, you really, truly realize that once that's like, Oh yes. Like these people that I've known for 20 years and, you know, we slept in bands again or whatever, all the you know cliches that you go through, like, right. like you said, those are the ones where it's like push comes to shove. They can actually step up and, and help you in ways that, you know, maybe other people who've only known you for a couple of years are like, well, I don't know about Nora. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll try to help him. And I think, and I think part of it is because, you know, I don't care who you are. If you ended up in this scene, you're fucked up. Something fucked you up. And you can go ahead and sort of like pretend that you're, everything's fine. And that, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I have an amazing family. I have amazing friends. I'm, I have a brilliant career. 
um, I don't believe you. If you <laughs> sure. And I think, I think ultimately that that's sort of also something about antimatter. Uh, you know, I used to joke and then it sort of became an actual mantra for the zine, which was, uh, you know, I said deep down inside, I, I believe that we all keep the same secrets. Um, I think that antimatter was a way of sort of exposing and communing and uh, communing with our secrets, um, with the things that we don't just tell each other, uh, you know, casually and, and just being able to just say, you know what, I am a little fucked up. Why do you think I'm here? Normal people don't jump on each other's heads and fucking kick each other in the face. Like if you're here, it's cause something happened to you. <laughs> and I think that that is a thread that binds a lot of us together. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Island of Misfit toy scenario, like even if it, it isn't this, you know, highly traumatic event, you just, and I also think to that, to your point, I think that there is a level of uh, empathy that exists because uh, of, you know, the diversity of experiences within the context of, of the hardcore scene or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, even when a hardcore kid does something fucked up, I still find myself sort of trying to give them the benefit of the doubt because I'm trying to like, <laughs> totally. I'm sort of just trying to read, read their scenario. Like, well, what fucked you up to be a hardcore kid? Right. Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what horrible situation or the fact that you looked at all your surrounding people and peer group and you're like, nah, I don't want to have that. So yeah. I totally. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's not going to surprise me when somebody does something terrible because, to some extent, like we all should be probably doing much more terrible things than the things we're doing because of the fact that we're all fucked up. <laughs> totally. but, but you know, that's the thing. I mean, and that's that's sort of maybe a a, a jokey way of, of of saying these things. What people say when they're like, "Hardcore saved my life," otherwise I'd be in jail or dead, or you know, or like or whatever. Look, we all have. Um, stories and some are more extreme than others. But I think the point is again, like, you know, uh, like when I did this Snapcase interview in Antimatter and Scott, their guitar player at the time, told me that he tried to commit suicide, I would have never guessed that in a million years. To me, you know, at that time, I remember just thinking like Scott was this like so you know, well put together, handsome guy. Like we used to call him the jaw because he had this sort of like models jawline. Like, you know, he was just like, so, you know, he was an amazing guitar player. Like it was all this stuff. And then he told me that story and I was just like, Oh yeah. Okay. I forgot you were a hardcore kid. Right. Totally. You know? <laughs> right. Oh yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. That, I, I understand. We all, we all have these dark things that we're, we're carrying around. Yeah. I get it now. Right. <laughs> And that's sort of what what antimatter really was. Like it was almost like digging deep to try to figure out what fucked you up to be here. Yeah, totally. No, I, I totally understand that. And actually, that 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 just you completely teed it up without you even knowing it. This is the the last thing that I was going to ask, which is something that you know you have asked many many people during antimatter. You probably know where I'm going with this. Where <laughs> when was the last time you cried, Norm? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so it's been, it's been a week. (laughs) That's good. Um, maybe, maybe a little more than a week. Um, so it was watching a TV show cause that's what, um, (laughs) that's the spot you're in. (laughs) That's yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely look, I am a crier. Uh, like I cried at TV all the time. Um, but this particular show I was watching making it. Oh, with yes. uh, Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler. And it's supposed to be 
I, I, when I talk about making it to people, I describe it as this show that's, um, sort of like the great British baking show. Like it's, it's sort of like a very wholesome, you know, reality competition where nobody sucks and everybody's really nice to each other. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice breath of fresh air, uh, from, from, you know, trashy reality competitions, which I also love. Um, but there was a, uh, a family heirlooms challenge and everybody was, uh, working on their projects and Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman and Simon Doonan, uh, they, they walk up to this one person's, um, project and he's explaining to them what his concept is. And in order to do this project, everybody, all the contestants had to bring a family heirloom. And he said, uh, he was the only one who did not have a family heirloom. And the reason being was that he had come out to his parents and they had immediately, uh, disowned him. And, it was so cruel that they actually, uh, the next week when he went to work, uh, there was a black funeral wreath that was sent to his office, um, with a card that said in memory of our dead son. And he's telling this story and I am just gutted. I am just sitting there completely gutted. Um, you know, and he's crying and I'm crying and, you know, part of it is that I am feeling his pain. Um, you know, as he's telling the story, it's really like affecting me in a deep way. The sense that we can be so cruel to each other that, you know, it's, it's because here's the fact, like, you know, I've said this earlier, you know, my parents basically disowned me for being gay and, uh, they didn't send me a black funeral wreath. Like that's sort of twisting the knife in a way where there's no reason to do that unless you're an absolutely cruel, like you should go to hell type person. Um, and I didn't necessarily get that, but knowing how difficult it was just to be disowned without the twist of the knife, it really just like broke my heart. And, uh, and I think that that was, that was something that I was really, I was pretty raw, I think, that whole night. And, and I really actually even thought about trying to find him on Facebook, like just wanting to talk to him because it was, it had just affected me that deeply. Sure. Um, but I, you know, like I said, it's, it's not, I think being disowned is not something that you get over. Uh, you know, like I found out that my parents were dead by Googling them. Um, otherwise I would have no idea. So, you know, all those things open up old wounds. Every time it's their birthday, I still have a wound that's open, you know, so I get it and I get this guy's pain and it really just was, uh, it was a bit much to handle. Sure. No, absolutely. I, I, I mean, yeah, cause most people, that most people, uh, I, I'm very much the same way as you where, you know, you're, I, I cry at most things like, you know, I go out with my wife and child to see Coco and I'm a blubbering mess. And Oh, Coco was deep. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, but you know, for people like you and I, like we would be, you know, like hugging each other and bawling and like, 
like my wife, my, <laughs> my wife and my six year old son are just like, what, what are you okay, daddy? And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just beautiful. But, yeah. But yeah. it's like, that's, the, I mean, to me, it's like, that's the, that's the whole point of art is to move you. Like, I don't care highbrow, lowbrow, anything in between. It's like, if it moves yeah. you, then that's a real thing. I agree. I, f- I feel like um, the worst thing that you can say about a piece of art is that it's interesting. Right. <laughs> totally. And I never want people to say that about anything I've ever made. I want them to feel it. If, they, if they're not feeling anything, it's not worth doing it to me. I agree wholeheartedly. And what, what a button on that, my friend. It's like you're a professional journalist or something. Oh, wait, no, I shouldn't. <laughs> you're, you're a professional culture <laughs> observer. <laughs> Yeah, I'm an observer. <laughs> well, Norm, thank you so much. This was uh, this this turned out uh, exactly as anticipated, which was awesome. So, thank you. Thank you. Sweetness. Thank you, Norm, very much for coming to hang out on the pod. I appreciate it. I, is it weird that I call it the pod? I just feel like it's like the house, the pod, because rather than the podcast, I don't know, whatever. Anyways, uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening, obviously. Uh, I hope that your holiday preparation season is going uh, well, not stressful. Whatever you're looking for from it, I I hope that you're getting from it. Um, Next week is a great show. I had, this was an interview I conducted a while ago, but uh, so I had to move it around a little bit. But Jeremy Stith, Stith, right? Yeah, Stith. Just wanted to make sure that I wasn't butchering his last name. Jeremy Stith, he's the vocalist for an incredible, incredible band here from Orange County called Fury. Uh, so, you know, a hardcore band, but they've got a lot of interesting influences going on. He also plays in an incredible band called Gem on the side as well. That's sort of like 90s power pop. It's really cool stuff. Uh, Jeremy and I just, we just started to email each other and I, he was like, hey, I'd love to come on the show. And I was like, yeah, you're an interesting dude. I would love to have you on the show. So we did that and that is what's happening next week. So please, like I always encourage you to be safe and, and please do that. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.